Well, welcome indeed once again to community, and it's delightful to have you here for the evening service. Thank you so much for finding it important to be in the house of the Lord yet again here on the Lord's Day. And to those that are joining online, we thank you so much for your presence with us also. We simply want to be a blessing tonight as we continue in the service. I'd love to have you open your Bibles tonight to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. So if you'd find that place, Ruth, chapter 1. And I'd like to read this chapter for us, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll look at the message here for tonight. Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me, with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you might find rest, each of you in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you, or to return from following you, for where you go I will go, and where you lodge I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of the barley harvest. 
lend our reading here and let's join together, shall we? We'll pray and ask God's blessing. Father, we thank you tonight for your loving kindness and for your great free and sovereign grace that you have shown to us. We thank you for the joy of salvation. We thank you that we can come into your presence tonight and know that our sins are forgiven because we have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Savior from sin and all that needed to be done in order that we might save, he did be saved, he did on the cross of Calvary. We thank you for our steady companion each day, not only the Holy Spirit residing in our hearts, but the Word of God, that we might find encouragement, help, comfort, and strength. To it we come once again tonight, asking for your blessing, even as we heard the Word of God this morning in our, our Sunday school classes and in the morning service. So it is, we come back to the Word of God tonight, knowing that your word is forever settled in heaven and having great confidence that not one jot or tittle shall pass from the law till all shall be fulfilled. And knowing that thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name, we also remember that thou hast told us to give attention to the reading of your word and then to preach the word. This we do tonight in obedience to your command, confident that we may then ask your blessing. I pray, O Lord, that you will cleanse me from sin. I pray that you would give to me a a fresh portion of your spirit. I I know tonight, Lord, that I am unworthy of the least of your favor. But bless your servant tonight, Lord, and help me to speak speak forth freely those things that you have given to me and use them to be an encouragement and a help to others here tonight. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. These things I pray in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, this evening we want to begin a series on the book of Ruth. I have to tell you at the outset, and you would figure this out very quickly, that this is probably not what you might have been expecting if you just heard someone say, we're going to have a series on Ruth. wouldn't be wrong for us to approach Ruth at all in the traditional sense. We read in chapter 3, all the, daughter, all the daughters of my people, Boaz says, know that you are a virtuous woman. So we think about Proverbs 31 and we think about the subject of a virtuous woman. It's an interesting thought to come to the book of Ruth and explore Ruth from that perspective. But well beyond that attribute and that description that's given to her is the prominent feature in the book of Boaz who plays the part of the kinsman redeemer. And we know that ultimately that's simply a type which is fulfilled later in the ultimate Redeemer, even the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a lot you can do from the traditional approach to the book of Ruth. Nothing wrong with that. But that's just not what we're going to be doing, God willing, in this series. Instead, we're actually going to be talking about Naomi. Now, you'll hear about Ruth. We won't miss those points. We'll see them along the way. We'll be looking at each of the individual chapters in more or less an expository fashion. But if I were going to give a title to this series, I would simply title the series... Naomi, a study in bitterness. That's quite an arresting subject when you really think about it, the subject of bitterness. And you might think to yourself, well, where in the world do we find that? Well, I don't know how closely you paid attention in the reading of this tonight, but if you check it out, you'll find that you have this actually three times occurring in chapter 1, and it sort of sets the stage for what we see unfolding in the rest of the book about Naomi If you look at the verses here uh, in the chapter for a moment tonight, first of all, you have verse number 13, and this is the first time that we find this occurring where Naomi is the speaker. And she says in this verse, Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marriage 
No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter. Note the word occurring there. It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. You will find it twice in verse number 20. So drop down there and let's see that we put this together. Verse number 20, she said unto them, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. But she says, Call me Mara, for, and that means bitter. So there we have some form of the word occurring there. It's just that it's, it's put to us actually as the word is in the original. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And there's the third occurrence or the second occurrence in that verse. Now, you may be more familiar with this concept than what you think. This word Mara, when we find it occurring in the text tonight, actually causes us to think back to a fairly well-known incident in the Bible. Um, the children of Israel are just fresh, three days out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They're three days into the wilderness. That's a, a horrible place to find yourself without water, and yet that's the exact experience that they were in. And so they, they came to a place where there was water. The only problem, and do you remember the story in Exodus chapter 15? The water was bitter. And the Lord, the, the, the children of Israel do what we typically do in those situations. They, they murmured. They grumbled. They complained. But you remember the story? God showed Moses a tree is how the King James Version translates it. The, King, the, the ESV tickles me when it translates it a log. I can just see, I don't know, either conjures up kind of interesting images, but you can just see Moses hefting this log and chucking it into this water. But anyway, this is what the Lord instructed him to do. There's, a, there's another message in that. That's a different thing. But he, he puts that in there, and then the Bible tells us that the water became sweet. But in commemoration of this event that took place, they named that place Mara, which means bitter. Well, they encountered bitter waters there. So this is going to be what we're going to be talking about, and we're going to see it in the life of Naomi and I hope that we'll approach this with an open heart tonight because bitterness is a deadly sin. It causes tragedy in churches and in individual lives. And I believe that God may have some things here for us to consider. And if nothing else, it is a, it's a tremendous thing to warn us about things that can be of tremendous damage and negativity in our Christian experience. So moving into the message tonight, the first thing I want us to look at in verses 1 through 5 is what I'm going to call hammer blows what is it that exactly happens to naomi that brings her to this state in which she self-describes herself as bitter you know it is a scary thing when you think about those verses that we read verse 13 and verse 20 it is something of a scary thing to me that to realize that she really describes her own problem and yet seems to be somewhat unaware of just how true it really is of her but there are these hammer blows as i like to call them and there are three of them and the first one is the, what we see at the very beginning of the story, that she loses her home. I don't think anybody really likes to be uprooted, but a famine might give you pause for thought. And we're not really given a whole lot of details about this other than they made the decision. Probably this was something that Elimelech thought over a great deal. I'm sure being Ephrathites, as we're told here from Bethlehem, that they gave a lot of thought before they just decided that they would pack their bags and leave what they had grown up with and knew to be home. Ephrathites is kind of interesting. You might have noticed that detail in verse number 3 towards the end. It says they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. Well, we know Bethlehem and we know that Ephratha or Ephrata is, a, is a, an older name for Bethlehem. But there is some biblical opinion among students of the Bible that this older name actually was sort of something that would indicate 
how shall I describe this? Um, sort of the, the, the founding fathers, so to speak. In, in other words, the, the people who were well-known, the people who were established, the people who were noteworthy and of note in the town of Bethlehem. This, this in some respects, maybe helps to explain why later when Naomi came back, it caused such a stir after she'd been gone 10 years, and they, and they say, is this Naomi? Well, because I'm sure this wasn't a decision that was taken lightly, but I'm also sure that it's sort of a, a difficult thing, really. And as we think about blows, I have a, a way that I want to describe this for you tonight. I'd like to call this a glancing blow. I mean, this is not a fatal blow, but it, it's not something that's insignificant if you think about losing your home. I don't know if anybody here tonight's had this happen to them before or not, but you know, you have a lot of experiences in the, the line and work of ministry. And I remember years ago, we had a couple that was on our staff. They taught in our Christian school. Well, they were away on vacation, and I don't remember the exact causes of it, but their home caught on fire and burned. And I had the dubious task of calling them on the phone. The, 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 the people got in touch with me, the fire department, the authorities, whoever they were, got in touch with me and said, did I know how to track these people down? I said, I think so. And I was able to track them down, and it wasn't really one of those phone calls I was looking forward to to have to tell them that, you know, your home burned, and you need to come home. Well, if you think about this for a moment, I don't want to labor the subject, but think about what home really means to you. Think about the things there that make you comfortable. I mean, home is a place really that, home is different than a house. I'm sure we all know this. But in that house, there are, th there, there are the things that make up a home, things that we're familiar with, the things that we... We go there and we just, we find security and we find that we can let our guard down and we can relax and we can enjoy. So let's call this a glancing blow tonight. It's not a fatal blow, but it's not insignificant. But it's followed up in quick succession with something else because the story doesn't progress too far before we read in verse number four or verse number three. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left of her husband. She, uh, she was left of her husband. Well, I want you to make sure that you notice in that verse, um, she was left with her two sons. And notice the word left, because we're going to see that come up again in just a few moments. Now, if the first hammer blow, we, we sort of categorize and describe this as a glancing blow, let's... Let's refer to this a little bit different. This is getting more serious. This is what I would call a telling blow. Now, this is where it begins to get very telling because the loss of a spouse, I mean, you can live without a home. You can live without your house. But the loss of a spouse is another thing altogether again. You know, if Jesus tarries, beloved, and we live long enough, we'll have to face that one way or another. Somebody's going first, unless it just happens to be one of those unusual occurrences where both go together. Somebody's going first. And that's an unpleasant thought. That's not anything anybody really wants to, to think about. And when it happens, it, it calls forth from our hearts a lot of emotion and a lot of empathy, and, and rightly so, a lot of sympathy with people. I mean, just plug into this for a moment, and don't just let it go like water off a duck's back and think about what this would mean if you lost your spouse. So this is the telling blow. And then we come to the last thing, and we'll simply say that she gets to the place where she's lost hope. Look what we read here. These, that is the two boys, Mal Malon and Kilian, they took Moabite wives. It says the name of the one was Orpah, 
The name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Kilian died. Now, here's this word left again. See it in this verse? It starts to really pile up. It starts to really rack up. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This, if the first one is a glancing blow and the second one is a telling blow, this one is a devastating blow. And she really describes it herself when we get a little bit later in the chapter and she's talking about this in verse number 12. And she says, Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, and from this you sort of glean that this is a woman who's just at a point in her life where she has just lost hope entirely. Everything seems to be gone. It just seems like one after another, in cascading effect, she comes to the place where this last devastating blow renders her without anyone else really around, and she's in a strange place. She's a widow. She's devoid of any means of support. Now she's devoid of any family. And there she is in the land of Moab. What's she going to do? She's left. kind of hard to think about these things, isn't it? But this is where it is for her, especially when you think about the fact, and, and I don't mean to say anything other than what's objectively true. I mean, these wouldn't be easy things for any of us, but when you think about a woman in these circumstances and what those things mean to women, as best we as men can understand that, you've got a situation going on here. I want you to know something tonight. I'm not in any particular rush to enter into any judgment with anything that we read here about Naomi tonight because these things are just more than I have the words to describe. And the effect of this, hammer blows. Well, we need to move along, and as we move along, what this does is to elicit from her what I'm going to call heart cries. How could they not? How could they not? And when we listen to Naomi speak, we cautiously listen because even though we realize what it must have been for her and how difficult these circumstances were, almost that we don't have words to describe, yet still back in the back of our mind and our heart, we remember that out of the abundance of the, mouth, of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So when these words come forth from her mouth, they too are telling. And we have to be willing to look at those things and think to ourselves, well, how did she respond? Can I see myself responding that way? Have I responded that way? Is that something I need to be concerned about if that's true? There are three of these heart cries. They elicit these, these, these three, the hammer blows elicit these three heart cries. And really when you get to these heart cries, this is where we begin to see the bad things about bitterness, which is the title of tonight's message, Bad Things About Bitterness. Folks, you know, this is a little bit like, and I know some people pay more attention to this than others, but if you have had a problem with this, you learn to pay more attention to it. This is sort of like warning lights on your car dashboard. You think about these warning signs. So if, if for example, you see the alternator light come on, or if you have a gauge, if you see that you're no longer receiving any charge output to the battery, 
you don't have to pull over right now, but you better figure something fairly soon because as soon as that, if that alternator has failed, as soon as that car draws what it can off that battery, it's going to stop. It isn't going to run anymore. And you're going to be walking. Now, if you look and see that the oil light comes on, you better pull over. Or if you've got a gauge and see that you've lost oil pressure, that is more serious because that car is not going to run if you don't have oil in it very long. It's going to overheat and seize up. And then you're going to see something else. You're going to see that other idiot light or gauge, you see that needle creeping towards the red zone on the temperature. It's time to take that seriously. I had to tell one on my, my daughter when she was out on, on deputation, I guess, I don't know whether she was just wasn't paying as much attention, but she noticed that heat gauge rising on her car. And I don't know, you know, what do you do when you're in that situation? In Pennsylvania, you're on I-80. And it can be wild and woolly up there on I-80, for those of you who know that. And she was up there on that road. She was by herself. I'm trying to think now if she was on her way to a meeting or coming back from a meeting. I think she might have been coming back from a meeting. So this thing started to get hot, and she thought, well, maybe I can make it just a little further. That wasn't the way it worked out. And we ended up having to go after her and go after the car, and we ended up having to have the thing, the engine overhauled, having to have the thing rebuilt. So when you think about these heart cries, and we begin to see these bad things about bitterness emerge, think of them as warning signs. Ask yourself, do I see this in my heart? Do I see this in my life? Because these are things to be concerned about. Well, what's the first one of these? And the first one is blaming God. Now, these heart cries, they all occur within these three verses. Verse 13, verse 20, verse 21. And I want you to notice something about them. In, in every one of these, she's, she's naming God. So look at verse 13 once again. She says in that verse, Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then we come down to verse 20 and watch for this. Again, she said unto them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty, there is God's name, the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 21, she says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Do you see, folks, how subtle this is? And yet how dangerous this is. Because now what's happening is, this is a warning light going off on the car dashboard when you start talking that way. Because what this is revealing is, is that somehow in her mind she's connected all this up with God. She's laying all this at God's footstep. As if somehow God was out to do her dirty. As if somehow God had shortchanged her. And when you get into that shape, you're not far from bitterness. You're not far from anger against God. And this is a very dangerous thing to have happen to you in your life. And the simple reason for it is, this is as old as the Garden of Eden. Well, when you think about what happened in the Garden of Eden, what took place? Well, you know, the devil, he's pretty sneaky, to put it mildly. So he approaches Eve and he says, hey, he says, has God really said, I mean, God couldn't be that bad. Has God really said that you... You shall not eat of all the trees of the garden. She says, oh, no, no, no. God isn't like that. He just said that tree over there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
that in the day that you eat of that, you'll surely die. The devil said, no, you won't. You see how crafty this is, how this works? No, you won't. You won't surely die. Here's the problem. The problem really is that God knows that in the day that you eat thereof, you'll be like him to know good and evil. Do you see how this whole thing is crafted to drive a wedge between her and God, to somehow distort her impression of God as a good God, as someone who always had their... What else did they know about God other than that he had made them, he had put them in that garden, he had given them each other, they were surrounded with a, a perfect situation, and now somehow this thought has been injected into their minds that God is something less than what he's represented himself to be. But it's all baloney. And if you're going to listen to somebody, especially when you're in dangerous circumstances like these, when you know you're vulnerable, if you're going to listen to somebody, listen to God. What does God say? Well, God is not against us. I mean, there's a lot of verses that we could look at in the Bible, but you, it's hard to improve on a chapter like Romans chapter 8. Look at this verse, verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is not against us. God is for us. So if I'm going to listen to anybody, I need to remember Satan might have meant something for evil, but God ever, always, only means it for good which is why when you back up from that to verse 28, it says, we know. This is a certainty that we can have. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So when you start feeling that way, when you start talking that way, when you start hearing yourself talk that way, it's time to check that. This is dangerous to get into this type of a situation. And God is not unkind. God is not only good, the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, his faithfulness to all generations, but God is gracious. Gracious is the Lord, it says in Psalm 116, verse 5, and righteous. Our God is merciful. None of these things that we say, none of these things that Satan says to us and whispers in our ear are true about God, because God is for us, always, ever, only for us. And God is good, and God is gracious, and God is kind. So that when I feel myself beginning to resent God. See, this is a little bit like Mrs. Job, and you have to kind of, again, I'm not in any haste to rush to judgment there. Job did that for me. I mean, he said, you, you, you talk like one of the foolish women talk. But if you think about it, it was kind of a similar situation there. I mean, remember that first chapter of Job? It's just a day when his sons and daughters are at one of, the, one of them's house feasting, having a time, a good time. Servant comes and says, the oxen and the donkeys are gone. The Sabaeans fell upon them and they struck down the servants. Servants are dead. Your livestock's gone. This guy no sooner delivers his wonderful message than another one comes in and says, the fire of God. Well, he got that wrong. Did you ever think about that? When you read that, he called it the fire of God. It was not the fire of God. God didn't have anything to do with that in the direct sense. Satan was the one who brought that fire down. The fire of God fell. Sheep are gone. Servants are struck down. 
This is just really building up. You talk about hammer blows. He no sooner gets gone from the scene than another one comes in. He says, the Chaldeans fell upon the camels. The servants are struck down. The camels are gone. And then, talk about glancing blows and then telling blows and then devastating blows. The next guy comes in. He says, your sons and your daughters were at one of them's house doing what they sometimes did, got together for a great time. They were feasting. And a whirlwind blew in, knocked down the four corners of the house, and they're all gone, they're all dead. And Mrs. Job, what does she say? She says to her husband, why don't you just curse God and die? Why do you hang on to your integrity? Why do you keep holding on to this idea that somehow God is not to blame, that God is not at fault in this? Folks, I just only know to say to you when you're in those kinds of circumstances, don't listen to that. Listen to God. Listen to what he says about himself. Hold on to that. And so this is the first of these warning signs. In her heart cries, this comes out. Beware when you see this kind of thing happening. Let's look at the next one. We've pretty much covered this ground, but the, the next one is to, is affecting others. Now, here's something that's, like again, this sort of begins to, to accumulate. Because in the first heart cry, she's only talking to her daughters-in-law. Notice verse 13, and it says here, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marriage? So she, she's, no, nobody else is around at this particular juncture. She's just talking to her daughters-in-law. But you know what? When you get down to verses 20 and 21, she's come back to Bethlehem, and she's talking now to the whole town, whoever's there listening and they come out, and the whole, as it says there, the whole place is in a stir. And these women come out, is this Naomi? I, you know, when every time I read that, I think to myself, I wonder what all was tied up in that? What, what, what all emotion, or what, what was it that they saw in her facial expression? Did they see her coming back? She had gone out. She says it herself. She went out with a name that meant pleasant, Naomi. And she came back, and I can almost just imagine in my mind's eye that she comes back stooped over the lines and creases of worry and sorrow down her face. And those women look at her and they say, Naomi? And right away she says, don't even bother to call me that anymore. Don't call me. Why would you call me that when the hand of the Lord has gone out so bitterly against me? It'd be better for you to call me Mara, bitter. As I say, it's a little scary when she starts saying these things because it's, it's like she's self-diagnosing and doesn't know it. But now she's talking to the whole town, anybody who's there to listen. And folks, this again is one of those very... Another warning light has gone off on the dash. Because now what you have here is the recognition that bitterness is like a malignancy. I don't know of any benign bitterness. Unless it's caught and checked right away. Then maybe. But for the most part, bitterness is malignant. It always spreads. It's always damaging. It always hurts other people. As well as it hurts the person who's involved with it if it's not recognized and if it's not checked immediately. And this is why you have another slick spot. See, anytime you're on a slippery slope, which is what this is, this whole thing is a slippery slope. 
And the first slick spot has to do with blaming God. But you know, now you, it's, it's treacherous at best trying to go down, but if you hit a patch of loose gravel, now you've hit another slick spot or slippery spot. I don't know how much it has to be a matter of concern around here, I guess every once in a while, but if you live in the north for any period of time, you get very respectful when people start talking about black ice. If you've ever had any encounters or dealings with it, I got acquainted with the pavement a couple times, not realizing it was there. Pavement's hard. In my younger years, I could absorb some of that a little better. I don't want to. I don't really want to go down that road anymore because I I don't know. You know, I just know as you get older, bones break more easily. But I I can tell you this is dangerous. This is another slippery spot on what's already a challenging slippery slope. So you hit this second slick spot and you have a one-two punch because, see, the bitterness has already affected Naomi. Now, now we're telling others about all these problems. Now we're airing our grievances about God to other people. Now we're tearing God down to other people. This is not good. You know, it seems like for us, we have such an ability to take something that God gives us and turn it into something negative. It just seems like, you know, if you ever, someone has made the remark that the oyster takes a a speck of sand and turns it into a pearl, but people take pearls and turn them into specks of sand. And there's some truth to that in looking at this with her, this one-two punch, talking to other people. You know, years ago there was a basketball tournament that involved a couple of Christian schools. You've, I mean, you've probably attended these things before. We, <laughs> I put in my time at a, any number of those things. But this particular situation, these two ca- two teams that come together, and you know, as often you have a little bit of goings on beforehand. You know, there's milling around, people talking, and and uh, maybe sometimes you have some music playing, but. It gets close to time for the game to start, and then the, the teams are going to come out. Well, in this particular case, and we know about this because the youth pastor was sitting in the, of, of the one school that came out first, was sitting in the stands, and found himself in kind of the interesting circumstance of sitting in the midst of people. I don't know whether there wasn't a, a spot there for his team, but he found himself in the midst of people from the opposing school. That, that can be quite educational. I don't know if you've ever had that happen before, but that can be rather interesting. Well, it was certainly interesting that night. These boys came out, and right about the time they were ready to dash across the court and go over to where their bench was, a woman, it, it, this was one of those things that through no particular fault, somehow she was walking across the court. It was an exceptionally inopportune time to be doing that. These boys were only paying attention to what they were getting ready to do, and it was a complete accident. It wasn't anybody else's fault, but the lead boy running out onto that court, this woman didn't see him, she didn't see the woman, and he plowed right into her and knocked her flat. Well, he not only knocked her flat, he knocked her out. She was unconscious, and these guys are all, can you see this, a bunch of teenagers? I mean, I can see this in my mind's eye. They're all standing around, huh? It was like deer in the headlights. They don't know what to do. And finally, somebody called the rescue people. They came, took her off to help her get treatment and whatnot. Well, it wasn't very long before the youth pastor started to hear the scuttlebutt of people talking up there, but there was one woman who who stood out quite in particular. Now, when she started in with her comments, 
One of the things that rather telling that she admitted was that she didn't see it happen. But she right away started telling everybody around her, that boy knocked her down and just kept right on going and never stopped to see if she was okay. It was blatantly untrue. From there it escalated. He's laughing about the whole thing. What a jerk. Also untrue. And from there, a number of other things that she managed to tell people all around. The whole team's a bunch of jerks. I hope God lets them lose this game tonight. And then the clincher. She said, I hope that boy gets hurt. I got a chance. She said, I'm just going to punch him in the face. Well, you know, the interesting thing is, you talk about affecting others. The interesting thing about it is that in the game, that boy was fouled and knocked down on the court. And those people that had listened to this woman and heard all this stuff that she spewed out, they started laughing and clapping. This is Christian school basketball. I don't know what it is about athletics, but <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not against athletics. Please don't misunderstand me tonight. But I'll tell you what, for some people, it, 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 it brings out some of the worst sometimes, and it's not a very good testimony. Here's the third. Fixating on oneself, or what you might call self-focus. Now, again, let's just try to take this apart for a minute. We need to kind of wrap this up, but I, I want to get this in. See, first of all, in verse number 13, she uses the word me. She refers to herself. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. I really like what the NIV does with this because it, I, it really brings out the significance of the point that I'm trying to make here, and I think it's, it's completely so. But you see there what I have for you, how the NIV renders this. It is more bitter for me than you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Well, the last time I checked, they all lost their husbands. But you see, this is what bitterness tends to do. We tend to fixate on ourselves. And we don't realize some things that we're losing sight of that are equally so. Look at verse number 20. Again, you see this. She says to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. Very bitterly. As if to say, you know, this is over the top. I mean, I, I've heard about trials before, but this is over the top, what God has done to me. And then, talk about fixating on oneself and what it leads to, self-pity, is that three times she either successfully or tries to turn away people who offer to help her. Can you see yourself doing this? Have you done this before? I think we all have. So that we can have our own pity party But in verses 7 to 8, she tries to send her daughters-in-law back. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, verse 8, Go return each of you to your mother's house. They try to say no. She says, You're not going to wait around for husbands. 
get real. And what we come to really is a third slick spot, which is the temptation to indulge in self-pity, as if somehow we were all alone, or no one else quite has had these experiences before. And folks, this also is not true. We aren't alone. She wasn't alone. She had Ruth. Insofar as it being over the top, and no one has it quite like I do, who are you going to listen to? Yourself? And the devil whispering in your ear? Or do you just take God's word for it and say no? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13 says, There's no temptation or trial taken you, but such as is, you know what it says next? Common to man. That doesn't mean everybody has the experiences you do, but somebody does. I mean, look, you can ask others, and they'll tell you the same thing, and even folks that have just been down the road in life will tell you this, but through years and years of ministry, I used to think to myself, you know, I was called to be with people at times that I couldn't even imagine what they were going through. And it was almost as if I had, that I never verbalized to anybody else, a, a bucket list of things. I guess that's the wrong expression, but a list of things in my own mind that I looked at and just thought, I hope that never happens to me. But it happens to people. And this is a lie that Satan tells us when he tells us that no one has it quite so bad as we do and no one knows what it's like to go through this particular experience. Somebody always has it worse. Here's the last thing real quickly as we wrap this up tonight. Overlooking our blessings. Now, this is part and parcel of the whole thing, isn't it? Because... You can't be concentrating on God's goodness and you can't be seeing your own blessings because they act as counterweights. They act as counterweights to the problems and the difficulties that come along in our lives. They balance them out. I always like that scripture and the way the authorized version translates it. In the day of his east wind, he stayeth his rough wind. God's always got some compensating token of providence God always balances it out. It's just that sometimes we get into the midst of certain things and we lose sight of the things that God has really done for us and that we have in our lives. She says in verse 21, I went away full. I went out. I had a husband. I had two boys. And the Lord has brought me back empty. And I'm thinking to myself, hello? You have this Ruth, and you don't even see that. You don't even see that in the midst of what is almost beyond description, God has given you someone very, very special. I can't tell you you'll have a Ruth. I, I just know that God works this out. 
Because he never tempts us, as that 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, above that we are able, but also makes a way of escape. With the temptation or trial, makes a way of escape that we may be able to bear it. Years ago, there was a couple that, they were young, they were also young in the faith. And they had begun attending a church in the Midwest. Well, they began to request prayer, and people sort of knew what this was about because this particular couple had, they, it, it was known that they had had several miscarriages. And now the wife was expecting again. And so everybody was just excited about this. Everybody was just remembering them in prayer, knew exactly what, when they, when they requested prayer, knew exactly what this was all about. Well, the woman carried the child full term, gave birth. Within two hours, the child was dead. The pastor was with them to help and try to comfort as best he possibly could. While they were still gathered there, after a little while, the doctor came in. He had the dead little girl. He handed her to the parents and said, would you like to hold her one more time? They had named the little girl Mindy. That couple did something that I don't know that I could have done. They got up and they walked across that small room to one of the sets of parents. They were lost. They weren't saved. Put the child in their arms and said this, if you don't trust Christ, you'll never see Mindy again. We'll be spending eternity with her in heaven. And you just think for a moment about what happened next and ask yourself if it would have happened that way if they had been angry with God and if they had railed against God and if they had carried on in a way similar to what we've seen here tonight. Three weeks later, those parents were in church and got saved. Bitterness. Bad things about bitterness. A little over 10 years ago, you may remember the story, but a little over 10 years ago, of course, I don't know how long the United States and others in the world have been working at this, but quite some time, but a little over 10 years ago, somehow or finally, the man who was the president of Iran at the time, you remember him? Maybe not, but Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. What a case he was, if you remember any of that. But he finally had to admit the world to the world that here they were trying to enrich uranium and trying to pursue the bomb and all this kind of thing. And somehow a virus had gotten loose in their secure facilities. Hmm, wonder how that happened. Kind of neat. Kind of scary. Stuxnet, it was called after the initials found in the code, Stuxnet. Whoever designed that thing, was it the Americans or the Israelis? 
Don't know. Sounds good to me. But whoever designed that thing, it went one way, and it attacked those computers that controlled their centrifuges, which are used in the enrichment process. Did a job on them. This worm went another way. That was at, a, at one facility there, in the Taunts facility. It went another way and infected the computers that controlled the huge turbine at their uh, another facility of theirs, their Bashir facility. Wreaked havoc. It just viruses wreak havoc. And bitterness is like that. Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment. Father, we thank you for your loving kindness. Lord, this subject into which we've entered tonight is kind of scary, kind of serious. I don't want to have this in my life anywhere around. And so I pray that I will be sensitive and so may the people here be sensitive to the scan of the Holy Spirit. Even as we might have antivirus software on our computers that runs scans. Thank you for our own good that the Spirit of God is within our heart, scanning constantly for those things that trouble, have the potential to trouble us. A bitter root of bitterness springing up that has the potential to defile many. Help us to stay as far away from that as we possibly can. And if for some reason tonight as we've listened and sense that we have some of these warning lights going off on the dash, oh God, help us to do business with you, to get that taken care of. Talk to somebody, seek counsel, make something right with somebody, whatever needs to be done so that we don't have these cascading effects happen in our lives. I pray in Jesus' name.